I was tricked by nostalgia into... Hey, it's Matt. This is episode two of Labor with uh, the Caribbean. Uh, we had a conversation at Splitty in New York, which is a bar in Fort Greene, um, with Jesse Jarno, who's the author of Big Day Coming, a uh, book about Yola Tango came out about a year ago, and also a, an author of a book about Deadheads coming out on Tecapo Press in 2015. We talked to him on the back patio. You can hear the sounds of the city behind us. Please check out Splitty if you're in New York. Uh, web address is SplittyNY. That's Splitty, L-I-T-T-Y-N-Y dot com. Uh, great new space there, and we appreciate them letting us record the podcast there. So, without further ado, here is us talking to the always interesting Jesse Jarno at Splitty in New York. We were talking about Stalin at this moment. Speak, could speak. He didn't like her. his wife so much. Well, his first wife died after a year. She had like some disease, and the second one killed Perfect. herself because he drove her crazy. That's what I'm getting at. Yeah, her in particular. <laughs> so we pick up our conversation midway through discussing oh. Stalin and his lack of. Uh, but having control. perfect pitch or not, <laughs> and also um, Stalin, gentleman or not? Yeah, gentleman or cad. Um, <laughs> I think he's both. Most people are both. You know, there's a little cad and gentleman and everybody. It's funny how the tenor changes as soon as the recording goes on. Right? I know. I know. All right, oh, forget it. Uh, no, no, you didn't do anything wrong. No, actually, I shouldn't um, have said anything. I should no, have it, it, it's, it's sort so of it's your whole, fault. It's the whole. Yeah, I love reading about Stalin because it's, uh, you know, he doesn't have horns and breathe fire. Right. You know, reading as right. reading about Hitler is is like reading about a human being and having to accept that this is a human who has maybe even has things that you might have in common with him, even as, as troubling as that is. Even he's still on Stalin thinking. now or Hitler? You're either about. one, either one. I mean, both. if I had to hang out with one or the other, Stalin, easy. I agree. Yeah, Hitler, Hitler was Hitler, not fun. Yeah, he didn't he drink like a, a walk-in party foul. Yeah, <laughs> he didn't drink. Yeah, right. He was humorless quite often. Yeah. Stalin was not humorless, and he did drink. So he's leading to nothing, right? If you call killing six million Jews a party foul, then I suppose. <laughs> well, it's a party foul, among other things. No, it's Big cool. day coming. Yeah, it came out uh, last June. Uh huh. And How, how's it been going? Did you do promotion for I it? Did do, I did. I did do promotion for it. You know, went on, went on some radio stations, talked to some newspapers. Email, emailed every indie record store in the country and yeah. sent them a mix. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's, you know, it's been going okay. I don't think it's, as they say, a million-dollar seller, but it seems to be fine in, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, we're well acquainted <laughs> with non-million-dollar sellers, so <laughs> yeah, believe me. Can, yeah. Yeah. A, a, a book charting the, the, the course of Yellow Tango is not, you don't write it for that reason. And right. if, you're re- if you're reading, if you're reaching, I should say, the the Yellow Tango fans and or people who might be interested, then job done. Yeah. And I, you know, seems to have found found some readers, and it, you know, did apparently did well enough that I'm allowed to write another one. So, has it so. found any readers oh, nice. named uh, Ira, Georgia, or uh, James? <laughs> um, How about Sven? <laughs> yes and no. Uh, they helped me. They they um, they did a fact check read of an early draft, and uh-huh. I think that I think it kind of weirded them out a little bit. Not in like a we're backing out of this kind of way, but just it was kind of strange for them to like see their lives, you know, spelled yeah, out right. page by page like that. Like an obit. Yeah, and I think they, I mean, I, I'm, not that I think, I know they had reservations about it going into it, just, you know, the, the, the notion of even having an auto, you know, a memoir, or not even a memoir, having a biography written about them is, you know, it's kind of, kind of odd to them. They're, you know, they're all very 
introspective people. Right. And um, to have somebody else come into their lives and, and sort of poke around and like private even beyond yeah. introspective, I would say. Right. Yeah, that'd be that'd be accurate as well. Um, and yeah, it, it, it definitely it definitely did weird them out. They were, they were you know super nice about it, sure. <laughs> but I don't think they read the, the final edition. Did you get access to any archives they had, uh, uh, I, like their I, memorabilia or whatever? Uh, um, Ira's brain was actually uh-huh. the biggest thing that I had I access that to. An archive, it, it, right, and yeah. it is. He's got sure. one of the most remarkable memories of anybody that I've ever met in any anywhere. Right. Like the, I, you know, I had I, at one point I dug into the old columns that he wrote for the Soho Weekly News and New York Rocker, and there was this like one column in particular where he like specifically listed like I think I think it was like the Jams debut in New York at CBs and he like listed what in, in the columns like oh the show was kind of half empty because there was this show going on this show going on this show going <laughs> yeah, on that right. night and then <laughs> at some point during the interview process I was hanging out with him in Georgia and that column came up and I know he hasn't read them in 25 or 30 years right. or something he's he, he was, and he was very adamant about not wanting to read them I'm like well, I've got them right here you know, very politely declined. And then I, that column came up, and he turned to George, and he's like, oh, yeah, that was the night that, you know, so-and-so was playing here and so-and-so was playing here. And he, was, he like, <laughs> right. he had just a, per- a perfect memory of just that right. one night. And, like, more than one person I talked to said, you know, this is how I remember it, but if Ira remembers it differently, he's almost definitely right. <laughs> so, yeah, and isn't that, like, it's totally a measure of what, what we're interested in, right? Because I'm a teacher, right. and it's amazing yeah. what you can get sixth graders to remember if you push the right buttons or you bring right. up the right topics. Yeah, yeah. Or my dad, who's a Presbyterian minister, like, if it's related to anything related to theology or a particular church somewhere or someone he knows who is also pres- I mean, yeah. absolutely <laughs> yeah, right. knows or everything Or just think of the Bible. Yeah. This book, that verse. Uh, yeah. He yeah. remembers stuff like that. Yeah. Matthew four seventeen. Well, I, I want to be clear on here. He doesn't actually spout that stuff, but he probably but does. But he knows he it. could. I think he probably <laughs> he knows does. It. No, he does. I would imagine. No, he does. Um, but, um, but beyond that, they Ira sent me a bunch of sort of their date, sort of uh, date files, just, you know, sort of listed oh, right. everywhere they played so right. I could sort of build a chronology. And then, you know, would send me set lists or something if I needed those cool. for specific shows and but beyond that, most of the archival stuff was sort of my own, my own digging. They've got well, they, actually, that's not entirely true. Uh, they lent me um, a book of all the Music for Dozens uh, flyers. Um, Music for Dozens was the shows that they that Ira put on at uh, at Folk City in New York. That was like the he booked like the first New York replacement show, and oh, a bunch of early Sonic Youth shows, and like one of the first New York Husker Du shows. I think it was oh. like their first non. So he booked show. shows as well. Yeah, he booked shows for like uh-huh. a year, and they, it was like a bunch of like it was. I mean, you, you look at the, the listings, and just this, you know, just right. amazing bill after amazing bill. It's like a Sonic Youth Meat Puppets double bill, and Sweet. you know. And like all over the place, you know, like you'll have like you know John Zorn one night, and you know it was it was a week a weekly thing. I want to say it was Wednesdays at Folk City, three dollars, three bands. He did that at the same time he was writing. He did not actually. He didn't. He stopped the new. What what happened was the New York Rocker went out of business in late '82, I think it was, and then him and Michael Hill, who was one of his co-editors there, just sort of started booking nights at Gertie's within like a month or two after that. It was almost like an extension of what they had been doing. Mm-hmm. But after that point, Ira almost entirely stopped writing professionally. He did a couple of Village Voice assignments, but kind of once New York Rocker folded, he was he was kind of done. You know, if you actually went around and 
you identified all the people in various places around the country who booked the bands you just listed, yeah. they all ended up becoming luminaries <laughs> and like either musicians themselves or you know, uh, running labels. I mean, you have like yeah. Gerard Cosloy, you know, working right. at Homestead, and I know Mark Mulcahy in New Haven. That was like how they started out, like booking Perubu and you know, in Connecticut. And sure. it's Makes it's sense. interesting. Makes it's sense. interesting. Yeah. yeah, I mean, Ira said that he was, you know, before he was confident enough to really be a musician, he just knew that he wanted to be involved in the music world around him. And and at first, that meant you know, write, you know, doing journalism. He was he was you know, he's kind of a natural writer and you know, a very smart guy. So journalism was perfect, and then, you know, like, sort of the faults of that came up over time, I think, for him, and when when New York Rocker wasn't around anymore then, it was like, oh, okay, the way I'll participate now is is booking shows. He was also um, a, the sound guy at Maxwell's, and, um, oh, and Georgia, desi- Georgia designed all the flyers for music for Nazareth, oh, so they're all yeah, these, like... And she did a lot of the, you know, the Yellow Tango cover art later. So, like, the cover for Ride the Tiger, which is sort of the skeleton of the tiger, mm-hmm, right. appears first as a flyer, sorry, uh, as a flyer for Music for Dozens. And yeah. now Cone of Silence okay. is going through my head. No, go ahead. <laughs> well, I, I'm a uh, librarian, so mm-hmm. I'm curious. You, know, you said you uh, researched his old columns. Mm-hmm. Where'd you get those? New York Public Library or... Well, uh, New York Public... Soho Weekly News are on the New York Public Library. That was a microfilm uh-huh. thing. Yeah, right. Just, you know, Good old microfilm. Scanning through every week and seeing what they were. So he did, um, he did sort of rotating columns. He did singles reviews sometimes. Mostly he did a, a sort of a scene column called Rocks Off that was kind of just like, you know, what's going on around town sort of a proto-blog Twitter account, whatever you want to think of it as. Right. Um, and then New York Rocker, which actually I, every time this comes up, I have to thank him. Again, Dave Rick, who was Yellow Tango's first bassist, had a collection of New York Rockers, as nice. well as a collection of Conflict, which was Gerard Kozloy's uh, zine, that he lent me for, you know, a year and a half or however long it took me to, to, to write the whole thing. Um, and there are New York Rockers at... Um, say fails library at NYU but it's you know it's a college library where you've got to like you know you can't ha- you can only have a laptop you can't take notes you can I mean you can take you can take notes on a laptop but you can't actually have like a notepad on the table right <laughs> yeah they don't want like pencils or pens on they the don't table. want the the, like the, the items uh, it's like the Toronto Star interview that guy did um, the Toronto Star reporter with uh, Selena Gomez did you see that like where they had him on total lockdown just to hear the new record he couldn't have his phone or his uh, anyway alright just like that it's yeah. exactly like yeah. that yeah. Acad- we're racing this part academic libraries are, are kind of an uptight place you know yeah they're, they're pretty fun to hang out at but they're Oh yeah, definitely there's on their on their terms. Library there's rules. Yeah, I did not get your Citizen Kane reference. By oh the no, way. he goes in and he's he goes into this chamber, and he's goes you know goes into the into into Kane's you know and he's not allowed to take any you know it's just sort of this it's just a weird and I always thought that was like okay well it's very very top secret you know <laughs> not taking notes is just an odd concept. I that was interesting. Your librarian, maybe it's normal. Yeah, maybe it's normal. <laughs> Here's I haven't given up hoping which is from our new record, Moonsickness, which is out fall 2013 on home tapes. Produced by Chad Clark. I haven't given up hoping you could buzz me up and then we'd sit down and explain how I could be so Are 
It's interesting what you said, like when Ira made the transition from being a an audience member to being more of a participant, uh-huh. you know, yeah, um, I, I thought that was, yeah, yeah. Um, Another drink, Jesse? I'm okay. Thanks. Um, and a water, have? if you don't mind. I had the, uh, I'll have one of Michael, what Michael had, okay? We'll edit, we'll edit this out. Thank you. Um, no, I just think it's an interesting concept. Like, we, I think we all make that leap at some point. You have to, going right. from, a, uh, you know, a... Uh, an observer to being involved, right? Yeah. You obviously did as an author, you're a reader, and then all of a sudden you become a writer, right? Right. And that's a tough transition to make. I mean, it was, I know for us as, we've done it in a couple of different ways. You you were, did improv comedy stuff, Michael, but we obviously well, did it as, as people who play music. I think when you to, know that you want to do something, when you want to participate, I would, I would imagine that Ira went to this too, to some extent, when he was booking shows and he was writing. Back in your mind, you know that you you know that you got to get up there and try it yeah. because you really that's what you really always wanted to do is write music or perform music and that I I was never any doubt for me anyway that's what I was going to do right I just you know my involvement in the music world has been only one thing primarily and that's been performing because I just didn't have the patience to you know I mean, you did some journalism. I waited in. I did journalism. No, I think that's. I think that's a good. I didn't do that, but partially because I met Matt, who had already done the waiting in, <laughs> so I could just jump into the pool and say, "Well, you've done enough, you know." But you had put in the, the time too, because you have to suck for a long time before you get good at something. You're saying that I? Yeah, I did. Suck. <laughs> no, well, I absolutely. You weren't at the top of your game. No, that's I mean. actually no, no, no. I mean, that's. Well, and I did know, some like, stuff. Skiing is great. I'm like, oh, I know I would love skiing, but I'm so not interested in sucking for that long. <laughs> yeah. That I, I, it's like, oh, you're scared of the speed. No, no, no. I don't mind even breaking a leg. I don't want to suck. And I'm going to suck. I have to suck in order to ever be good. Or like, you know, golf, which I don't really have a great interest in playing. But one of the reasons I could see why it would be a pleasant thing to do. But you suck for so long. And I just, I did that with, yeah, I did that with music. I did that with. I wrote fiction for a while. I thought I was going to be a, a novelist coming out of college, you know. Don't we I was going to have the <laughs> shingle, you know. Right, right. And uh, I flirted with the MFA in creative writing, which I didn't do. But, um, and the reason I didn't is because I, I just never graduated, in my mind anyway, beyond sucking, you know. I never graduated beyond mimicking my hero, right. that way. Um, well, limitation yes. is the first step, and you have and, to evolve and, beyond and that. And before I met yeah. Matt, yeah, I made a lot of, I wrote a lot of shitty songs, you yeah. know, so that helped. Well, essentially, my trans—I I hadn't ever thought about it in these terms. But my transition from being a reader to being a writer was almost instantaneous. I kind of have memories of reading, learning to read in kindergarten, and then it must have been first grade where they like give you a notebook and they're like, "Go home and write a story or something," and just. I really remember that first day, even writing this. It was just like some stupid story about a kid named John and his cat. 
And but I remember really just like writing pages and pages and pages and kind of from that moment on I just really like writing. I kind of always had a notebook around, I was always doing something. And I'm sure, you know, I mean, I was in first grade. It, it certainly, you know, sucked in, in some way. But I guess I never, it's funny, I never thought about the whole, like, influence thing until, like, high school or college. And, you know, and at that point it was definitely, like, you know, sort of sorting out what I had read from what I had thought myself and, and all that kind of stuff. But for the first while, I, I guess I'm lucky, I'm lucky in the sense that I, I was able to do this thing for, you know, probably a good 10 years before I even really started thinking about the even the idea of sucking that there was you know but after that, but that lots of thoughts about oh, sucking that's what's good is when you're younger is that yeah. you're not aware no, yeah. when you're yeah. doing it yeah. I mean I remember writing stories even a couple of novellas when I was like in high school and early college I remember that and thinking I mean if I didn't think they were good I wouldn't have kept doing it right. you know, I finished them I yeah, that's they the key good. If, you, if you don't believe in it I wrote go. crappy songs that but even the crappy songs survived a three-week return yeah. later, <laughs> whereas the crappy stories didn't. And I think that's... No, when you're doing it, you're not thinking to yourself. I mean, that's sort of... That now, looking back, I realize you have to go through that apprenticeship of that awkward... You know, the awkward, you know, baby lamb step. You know, you know you got to go through that process of just trying to feel your way through Which it. you can do a lot more easily when you're 18 or 20 or in first grade or whatever it is. Not that you did, but yeah. like, that's that's what's interesting yes. here is be, uh, for me is that I have tried to do a side project, you know, musically speaking. And I haven't written a song since 1991, maybe, 92. Because I ceded that to you. Yeah, I, I just said, okay, Michael's going to be the songwriter. So, But I'm old enough and wise enough to know what that I suck. And it's hard to keep going <laughs> If you suck at it, you right. know. I don't think you suck, but well, I, I don't know. Well, it's a relative term. It's no, no, not no. as good as I'd you're, like it to be. When you're 20 years old, you, you have the blissful ignorance of just saying everything that you try could be a great thing. You don't mm-hmm. know. You don't realize that for most people who are 20 years old, it's even if you're brilliant, it's not going to be good. Yeah. And if yeah. you knew that, you wouldn't probably dive in. Like yeah, I, you I, wouldn't. I didn't dive into, I didn't dive into uh, you know, architecture because I knew I sucked at math. You know, so I didn't do it. I mean, it's 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 it's. What were we gonna time. say? I was gonna say there's also like a third path that I really that I kind of think about sometimes. That you know, I'm I'm in a band also. Where, right. You know, we don't take ourselves like we don't. We have, we've never really toured. We've never you know we've recorded some, but we, you know we don't. It's not a career path for any of us. And kind of another way of saying that is we just don't ask if we suck. You know, maybe I you know I I don't think we're like the greatest band on the planet, but I'm but I get I'm getting enough enjoyment out of it and we're all getting enough enjoyment out of it. It's you know, it, it has value to us mm-hmm. and it doesn't matter if we suck because we're awesome. Right. And, you know, and that fuck, is a third we, we kick ass and well, it's great and we don't I don't I don't need validation awesome. for that. No, and I think that's that is when you I think when you sort of start thinking about it, and I, I use the word as a career kind of lightly because it's not like we don't make enough money to as a career, but we're lifers and we are, and it's what we do. Um, and I think once you cross that threshold, you do sort of take inventory a little bit and say, you know, we better we better have something really great to offer, you know. And and I think that there are things that I do that I just enjoy doing. That I don't put that. I don't fix that yeah. too. And so I understand what you're saying. Yeah. Although masturbation doesn't count, I don't think in this case. <laughs> it always counts. It always counts. Never mind. You're back um, just at the right time. Thank you so much. I, I know. I can tell. I do, I do worry far more about it with my writing than, 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 oh, than, we'll than music playing. Um, Thank you so much. 
Right. You're but, 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 because that's but well, and that's what we're talking about. Is, yeah. Thank you. Essentially, that, what? Because that's gotten, that's professional at this point. You know? Well, right. Well, most most of it one. is, anyway. And you're, aside from the fact that you're making money from it, music to us is what writing is to you. Right. So I can, I approach writing because I do some stuff for a local, our NPR affiliate in Baltimore, and I do stuff. Um, and I put too much pressure on myself, but still, at the same time, it's not quite the, quite the same thing as the band. Right. You don't find your self-worth in the same way. <laughs> no, that is don't what, find yourself you what? Your self-worth. Your self-worth. You don't define, right. you don't, you know, you're not defined by it. Where you're, you are, you set it up where you are defined by your, your, your product, what right. you produce. So, you know, it's, it is an interesting balance, because it's like, there are, there's the stuff that I write, because I, I really want to write it. Like, the Yola, the Yola Tango book certainly mm-hmm. falls under that category, and I definitely, you know, got paid for that. But there's a lot of writing that I do that is... That's, I, I do copywriting, which is really kind of like an application. I, I sort of think of that as oh, like you I've, do. Yeah, like I've got this, I've got this nice. skill skill set. Yes, and I can use it to get paid to do other things. And when I say copywriting, I don't literally mean like ad copywriting, but it's like you know I, you know I occasionally will write like a press release or something like that for a band or an album that needs Whore. that done. <laughs> or I will I will go to to an effort here to point out that usually thing almost in fact always things that um, I don't have a conflict of interest about it's not yeah. it, like I, it wouldn't be a band that I would ever be writing about and you right. know like reviewing it's usually stuff that's kind of outside my interest range mm-hmm. and I actually have done a lot of like um, writing like educational writing for kids which is kind of which is super fun um, I wrote a bunch of like you can find them they're on Amazon under my name I wrote a bunch of like books for like third graders and fifth graders and sixth graders about like Johnny Bench and socialism and, and Mark Twain and, and and where those two things meet. No, yeah, well, no, say, these are all separate. Did you separate write a book about Johnny Bench? And we're, socialism we are renaming well, the podcast Johnny Bench, Bench and Socialism. Well, let's just and let it be said. That, no, we're naming, we're naming something that he, yeah, he, he was a red. He's writing it. That's right. <laughs> he was a red. Well, that's better red than dead. Yeah. <laughs> and kind of a. And that'll oh, be just a podcast, kind of a douchebag. If I can go by his autobiography, even just Johnny by Bench? yeah, Johnny Bench. He subscribes. <laughs> Carlton Fisk but, subscribes, and actually, it's fine. He, he doesn't mind. He, his autobiography. This is a song called uh, "Jobs Worth," also off of Moon Sickness, um, coming out as I mentioned in fall of 2013, or it's already come out. If you're hearing this after that point, um, but here is "Jobs Worth." Jobs Worth being a term. Uh, for someone who kind of overdoes it and using their authority, a, a Welsh term actually uh, brought to Michael by Dave. So here's Jobsworth.
just saw a bounce Sebastian with uh, with Yola Tango opening the other nice. night. Nice, nice. Uh, and one of the best, most moving performances from a Yola, or a Bell and Sebastian was a Piazza New York catcher. It was fantastic. Right, right, right. Fantastic. Are you from around here? I'm noticing your uh, hat with the correct team on it. Northern Jersey. Right, I grew up in. Right. Yeah. You're a Mets fan. <laughs> well, yes and no. I'm a I, don't, I don't think Yoa Tango would let a Yankees fan write I'm not their a books. Yankees fan. I'm absolutely not a Yankees fan. Good. Do good. not make that mistake. Good. I grew up a lifelong, I grew up a, a, a diehard Mets fan. The last few years have been kind of tough, and I was sort of trying to make an experiment this year. I'm trying to do an experiment this year and root for the Blue Jays because they kind of have my two I favorite it, Mets. I dude. Like, I thought about that, too. They have, you know, R.A. Dickey and Jose Reyes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, we're winning. So I like the Blue Jays because well, but I like it, Kennedy and Tins. Yeah. But they had these two players that I really enjoyed watching yeah, in the right. last few years. And yes. it was, it was kind of like, where is, you know, really where is my allegiance? Is it with, right. you know, the Mets are not. There's nobody involved in the Mets organization that's, that were anyway involved with the Mets that I fell in love with well, except... I mean, the broadcasters. Sorry, I was going to say Howie Rose is the exception to that. There's no conflict because it's not like Toronto and the Mets are going to meet in the World Series. It's more of an attention span conflict. Right, Am yeah, I gonna, sure. like, if I'm going to commit to a team, I'm going to like listen to their games on the radio and follow them. And uh-huh. I, I don't have... I got a lot going on. I don't have like the time to totally follow two teams. Well, I mean, we get back yeah. to the old Seinfeld line. You know, like, why are you rooting for the Mets? Because you like R.A. Dickey. And because you like Jose Reyes, right. or are you rooting for the laundry? <laughs> exactly. I root for the laundry. No. I root for no. the laundry. Is it just the uniform oh, you're into? No. What is it exactly no. that well, you are? Well, no, I had a revelation you know. about that this season, which is that I was I started listening to the Blue Jays games on the radio, uh-huh. and their their announcers suck. I mean, they're not even Canadian, which is kind of which was kind of a huge yeah, bummer shock to me. That is a real. Most of their players aren't either. Yeah, well, but I was expecting that, at least like a Canadian accent or some like yeah. Oh, well, but, but Sorry. E- even more. Oh, come to the five dollars. Come to the yes, Saturday five dollar game. But even more, I was expecting like ads for like local businesses oh, and stuff. Like I wanted I some you. like color. Yeah, from, that's what from, I always like, loved about MLB Trump. TV. Is yeah, like exactly. to see The local flavor. Right, right, right. right. And there was and, and it and it just didn't feel that Canadian to me. And I realized that a lot of what I love about the Mets is like the mediation of it. Like I like Howie Rose is the. He was, he's been, you know, a Mets broadcaster since I was, like, seven years old. He, he used to host the post-game show. Right. Well, and, sure. And it's an accumulation of things for me. Yeah. Because, I mean, like, the Mets of 1978 means something to me. Yeah. The Mets of uh, 2008, you know, right. means something. The Mets of 1986 yeah. means something to me. And, like, what, do you just start from scratch with another uh, <laughs> another team? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, in answer to, I know you're just busting my balls, but that's uh, uh, all those things. The answer to those questions, all those questions is yes. The answer to all those questions is yes. As a Redskin and Capitals fan, I completely understand. There's not a year that I don't know something about. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I agree. Great. Well, it reminds me of a, a line of poetry, which is actually stands up. Meet, meet the Mets. Meet the Mets. Come on down and greet the Mets. One of my favorite all time. The well, great you got, you got it all wrong. Did I, I get it wrong? Yeah. Go, go. What is it? It's a meet the Mets, meet the Mets, step right up and greet the Mets. Oh, so there's, all, there's a right whole. Down, have you ever right heard the full close. version of that song? There's like a. Oh, there's of course, like, yeah. yeah. Middle aged versus with like, versus with, like, with, like yeah. Exactly. Life is very <laughs> short. 
there is actually a middle eight about like you know um, the, the, the butcher and the baker and the baker's wife or whatever. Oh, it gets bought. You know the butcher and the baker and da, 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 da. it's you know it's like it's like real, Canterbury Tales. All yeah, it gets in the, the, the Miller's Tale all of a sudden comes yeah. out of it. Right. Yeah. No, it gets dark. Chapter marker. Oh, and the cock crowed three times. It, uh, but as long as we're talking about yellow hey, this easy. is yeah right. Yeah. This is going to be our segue into the other thing, which is I'll get to in a minute. But <laughs> I want to bring up an anecdote that you said about antidote. Uh, uh, yeah, an anecdote <laughs> about um, our uh, a guy we know who's an old friend, but we haven't seen in years. More Michael's friend, but a guy named a guy named who shall remain nameless. Oh, <laughs> I still don't know who. It oh yeah. Okay, so we're, we right. played this uh, house party because a friend of ours asked us to play, and we played, and, and uh, this guy was there. We hadn't seen him in years, and yeah, this is yeah. a guy who we primarily knew in the early 90s. So in the early 90s, he was a, uh, he, he had... Seenster. Yeah, it brings up the wrong terms, I mean, the wrong sort of image, but I mean, he I'll was... I'll let you do it, sorry. No, no, uh, he had, uh, I'm struggling too, but like he codif- he was a codified sort of... Like I'm, indie rock guy in indie the indie early nineties. I knew right. him. Oh well, then, then I, then I yes. re uh, I restate Seenster. Okay, that's kind of how I at think the time. Of it. Right, right, right. So let's say in whatever was really happening and cool to like in nineteen ninety two, he had stopped and taken a vacation roughly until two thousand thirteen. So let's just say Galaxy five hundred. What do you say? I didn't even get it. <laughs> Galaxy five hundred. Uh, yeah, or whatever. God. But that's, that brings that's, up that's, the, yes. what you had said about what he said to you because he was talking oh, to Dave I know where you're going now, yeah. after our set and saying talking about influences or things you like so we're just uh, yeah we're talking we're chatting at a party never and I'd never, I'd never met this guy before uh, during part of the conversation the Velvet Underground came up so you know we're talking about the Velvet Underground conversation moves along and uh, and he makes a snide remark about the Grateful Dead and I'm like at the oh, they were. I guess they, okay. Yeah, they were playing at the playing. party. I'm like, not, I mean, I love the Grateful Dead. Not a set. Right. It wasn't further. But. I love the Grateful Dead, and no, it, like, sure he steps back, and he just, <laughs> he's, and he says, like, contaminated. Well, I mean, you mean you like the Velvet Underground and the Grateful Dead? <laughs> like, like it, it blew his mind. Yeah. Well, and I'm like, what are you talking about? First of all, yeah. uh, he's got so many. But the, well, the weird thing about that, I don't think we talked about this. He's got so many friends that do. Most of his friends, I'd say, well, 70% of them are some form of deadhead. And a lot of them like the Velvet Underground, and he knows it. And, no, go ahead. No, I was going to say, but go ahead and talk. I wanted to get to the dichotomy. You got it. I mean, I'm just saying the dichotomy. Like, that's interesting to me. Like, here's a guy who says, I can't like this and He was trying to impress Dave. I still think that. You know, in sort of like taking a hard line. He read it like, Dave will like... Indie rock. He's a scenester like I am from oh, 1992. Right. I'll score a point by making a snide remark right. about the dead. Or if nothing, yeah, right. And then but it's not so much to impress you strictly, but just to, or specifically, but to be like, I know the lingua franca of right. 1992, 1993, yeah. how we talk about indie music, right? And you like Yola Tango yep. and everything influenced by Velvet Underground, which would be Luna and, you know, Galaxy 500 and everything else. Anyway, so what that brings me to is this. Um, Grateful that is a huge thing. Yeah. It's just a topic and it's in and of its own right. But you don't actually meet a lot of guys who, if you look at your website, the first big things you get are like Yola Tango and the Dead. And that's how I was always fascinated by your Twitter feed. Because I'd always cool. tell these guys about you, like, I don't even know how I followed you. Like, I, I must have been a friend of a friend, but I'm like, this guy's always posting, like, 
three like section tweets about like specific sets, really descriptive, like, and it, it was fascinating. So, all right. Well, you know, it's funny because two hours. Actually, I, was talking, I, was, I was talking. I was talking to Brad. Michael and I are big deadheads. Well, Matt's dead friendly. Actually, but, uh, well, put, well I, put. I, I, I always, I am, but I always, I'm a little bit because, first of all, when Garcia died, it died. All the things that followed, I hate. I hate. I heard further recently, it was some of the worst shit I've ever heard in my life. It was terrible. It, they played a version of He's Gone that I almost drove off the road. <laughs> and it was it was so soulless and crappy. Yeah, no, I hear And you. And I yeah. hate, I, I don't want to see rat, I don't care. I don't want to see any of it. And actually... I was going to say rat dog. Rat dog. But I don't care. And I know that... And I, it's okay, problem. you can make fun of Weir. It's cool. I think Weir's a brilliant guy in a lot of ways. A great guitar player and a good songwriter. But uh, I get a little squeamish about it because a lot of deadheads that I know, and you're not one of them, but, you know, are like, you know, Zero's in town. Who gives a flying fuck Zero's in town? The dead were great. They died. Yeah. That they well, were, that's, they that's were, not, well, no, Jerry Garcia died. Uh, I'll, well, what I'll, listen to the thing, I'll, but. I'll defend further in the sense that I, I, I've never felt the need to listen to a, a recorded further show. I have ended up seeing them, you know, three or four times over the last five years. And there is something to be said for being in a room with a bunch of people who know that repertoire and know that music, and it means something to all those people in the audience. And that that can be really cool. Like, you know, the other part, though, is that Bob Weir has sort of adopted the singing style where it's sort of like the late period Dylan style where you can't sing along with him anymore, and which is sort of which sort of sucks because you, you go to it, or I go to a dead show, and I want to, you know, I want to... Wrap my arms around my brothers and sisters well, and sing along. Yes, um, and, that, and that is part and, of the allure. But but I but generally speaking, yeah, I don't feel the need to follow further around or, or any of that stuff. And for I, you know, I, I mean, I'd even go a step further. I can't. I can hardly listen to the Dead from after like '76 or '77. No, no, no. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm pretty much with you. Yeah. I mean, there's exceptions because I didn't start seeing them until the mid '80s. Right. right. But I. Well, same. We've I mean, had this conversation. Later, yeah. We had. You know, we sort of accepted at some point the painful realization that when we saw them, they were past their prime. It's just the way it was. Yeah. You know, now when I was going, eighty-five, I didn't think that. Yeah. And I'm sure when you were going, you weren't thinking that. Sort of like, like well, you, you, didn't, you didn't want to admit it anyway. Well, well, I whatever saw, the reason. Yeah. Sort of like you don't know or want to admit that you suck when you're first starting out as a writer or a musician. Well, perhaps. Yeah. I mean, the immediacy I'm just trying is, to get is the so Maddox exciting. Here, sorry. The, the, the immediacy is exciting. I think. Um, but but I was talking to talking to, to Brad who actually hosted this party that Dave talked to this guy, he's a good friend, um, and he was saying he, he he actually said to me he's like I think there's a weird and he likes both Velvet Underground and the Dead but he said there's a definite like a line demarcation and he referenced Anthony Bourdain I had no idea who's a not surprisingly a big Velvet Underground fan. And hates the dead. Oh, I can tell you that. That guy's also like the classic boomer New York late '70s well, guy he's who's going to be like dick, he's so a pretentious dick, right? But Talks the about point his is, though, t-shirt. I'm like, you know, I never thought of that as a war, and I actually don't like the old underground, but I don't know because I like. The, I mean, I just don't get. I'm not into it. I, I think it's fine. But I, it's I it's like a battle it. front on the classic rock dinosaur versus punk rock, and somebody who was bred on that narrative, reading Rolling Stone in the early '80s as I was, that is they're both classic rock dinosaurs. They're both, They're both classic rock dinosaurs. And I, I think the, the under, Velvet Underground was more important, probably, in a lot of ways. But they just didn't write as good as songs for me. 
Let's what, get back to this, though. Well, I'd, not, I'd be curious to know what Jesse thinks of what Michael just said. <laughs> which, which part? Uh, of like in, uh, well, in rock history and current well, influence, who was a more important well, band, funny, the Velvet I, Underground or the Grateful Dead? I mean, I'd argue over... I'd say the Velvets were probably more important influence on pop music, but the Dead were probably more of a, probably more important in the grander scope of American culture in a weird way. Like their influence went beyond music, beyond music, and yeah. which was you know it went pretty far beyond music. I'll also add that I saw the Dead twice in '94. I was 15 or 16 or something, and I thought they sucked ass. <laughs> I had a bunch well, of bootlegs at that point there. already. I started like collecting tapes. You know, I, I knew what you know. I knew what '72 sounded like already. Yeah, sure. And, yeah. But it was an amazing experience. The thing that I took away from it was that the crowd sang louder than the band, which was which is really still kind of this visceral thing that I can that I can like pull up when I think about the experience of going to that show. Was that every you know I knew I knew the songs they were playing and they opened with Shakedown Street and the crowd was just on top of it every single song like singing along louder than than the band was. So I found out later they just. Like by later, I mean like figured this out in the last few months that those shows, that first show that I saw was like a week or two after they fired their their sound guy, their like right, yeah. Dan Healy who was yeah, their longtime yeah, yeah. sound guy, and the new guys John Cutler supposedly mixed things very 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 low, so maybe maybe that wasn't a regular factor in their shows. Well, but well they also went and they put all the amps below the stage and right. they started oh, right. using the in-ear monitors, monitors. Right. so that had a yeah. big impact that's got to be an it. early adopter thing too right because those were not real common at that uh, I don't know but there's actually it's funny there's some there you can like listen to um, they were on like FM like short range FM frequencies so there were tapers who figured out that you could like uh, bootleg right. the, uh, oh. the ear monitors so there's all these tapes going around where of those last few tours where you can hear them talking to each other on like the the you know, the monitor system. Nice. Though the really depressing thing about hearing those tapes is that you realize, I can't remember, like, which one I even heard, but almost nobody was listening to everybody in the band in their monitor oh, no. system. Everybody was listening to Jerry, and that was pretty much it. I and think Mickey, Jack. I assume. Or, Just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what is it? My favorite description ever. Well, you were the New Yorker piece that, 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 that when the, when Nick the drummers re, reunited in the yeah. 70s, they were like two old sneakers and a dryer. That's what <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's right. pretty, that's pretty, I mean, Mickey ruined Billy. Yeah, no, I... I, I mean, ever see the video, like you see Billy playing, and it... Oh, sorry, yeah, yeah, Mickey no, good be, imitation. Mickey like, and then Billy would be like... Like he was surprised by every hit, you know. Like he Plus, was, if, if you were listening, if you were keying into Jerry on the yeah. in-ear, sorry, Michael, yeah, yeah. in 1994, you were listening to a lot of silence. Yeah, no, he, he was sensitive playing. Yeah, the yeah, quiet, right. Quiet slow songs. Um, I always want. I, I'm okay, thanks. Um, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I do wonder if. Um, Are you getting another beer? I'm good. Water. Okay. Like I, I, I do wonder what would happen if you got like a multi-track of a 90s tape and just sort of removed Mickey from it entirely and mm-hmm. would, you know, sure, you, you know, you'd get a little bit of leakage, but I wonder if, if what Kreutzmann was playing would sound, I would you love know, to passable. Hear I would love to hear I it. don't think it would sound very good, no. Yeah, really. I, I probably I think wouldn't. he was I, kind of bullied into submission. Yeah, <laughs> I know, I, I, that's exactly right. I think he was, I think he was playing the opposite of what he did in the 70s. He was passive because he couldn't, I mean, There's no just, room. Well, how at, do you swing at, against that? Yeah, yeah, yeah you look can't. Did, look at those early '70s tapes. He's basically playing jazz, and he yeah. is swinging like a motherfucker. 
Yeah. yeah. And I love some stuff with Mickey and the six, late 60s yeah. stuff. They were great. Well, we just listened to yeah. some in the car. 68, yeah. But even the 76, 77 well, the 70, that's, stuff. That's what I was referencing, yeah. actually. Yeah, yeah. They, they swing in kind of a different way, they're, but they're united. Yeah, I don't know that they, I'd use the word swing, but... Well, they uh, do in the sense that there's this But it still of, works. When we were yeah. at that party, I remember thinking this was a 77 tape that we were listening to, and it was like this kind of just this... Like just this wave of percussion. It's like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They, totally. by 78... It was Mickey was starting to go. Broop, broop, broop. It was starting to get messy. Yeah. And Garcia was starting to get into smack and you know. Well, and Keith was already well in the oh, decline Keith, by '78 as well. He was in the bag. Yeah, he, he wasn't. He was well in the decline in '77. I think even right, during right. that that classic year. He was. Yeah, but if you listen yeah. to like May '77, I mean, he is. He's a monster. Uh, I think it was his I, last. See, no, see, I, I don't. I, I disagree with that. Cornell, I, I think. He, I think he's Fire. the weak link in the Cornell show. No, no I, I, I know that's set transi- well. Scarlet Fire Transition? I he, have listened to it like 200 lead, times. He is leading the charge. <laughs> uh, I think he's I think he's the weak link. Well, I, I don't agree with that, but I, I, I ain't a fan of this. I think May, I'm a big May 77 guy. Yeah, yeah. I just think they were firing on all cylinders. <laughs> what's no, what, what's the stuff you like best? So, well, I was going to say, I just listened to that new that new box set. And the real... Okay. So, um, and the, my, my, the term that I think about... Whenever I hear Mickey do the you know, <laughs> thing, is, uh, is Zappa's term, which is Quaalude Thunder. Um, <laughs> and there is, a, there is a shocking amount, I mean, there is a shocking amount of that, on the, way more than I expected. On the, yeah, yeah, yeah. the slow songs, like they're doing Stella Blue or like I know, I know. Looks Like Rain, which I've started to maybe come around on a little bit, <laughs> listening to the well, 70s it's a version. It's a toasty song, but it's a yeah. pretty song. It's know? pretty, and it's, but when it, it's, and it's especially pretty when it's. When they play it in a really spare way, well, in like a really just like you know, like sketching 70, it or like you know. seventy-three. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. When when Billy's playing drums on on looks like rain only, tasty song. Sure. The um, lyrics are not good, right. but you just get over that. Um, but my, you know, my street my, cats making love. <laughs> <laughs> That's always my, and I love cats. I just don't, I don't need to, you know. Yeah, my years are basically the beginning through seventy-five. It's kind yeah. of like those ten years. Almost anything that happens during those ten years, I'm I'm down with. There's you know, a couple of questionable songs that maybe they started playing in there. Sure. But, but you know, ultimately, I'd like to hear every note that they played during those ten years, and after that, my interest starts to wane. But seven, I mean, seventy-five is up to then is really even even the Mickey stuff on seventy-five. Is I among, agree. Is among oh, yeah. my favorite stuff. That that uh, one from the Vault Show, eight thirteen seventy-five. Yeah, is, no, it's a great show. It's, it's a great show. It's an insane. Uh, great so show. I mean, so you're cutting out the. Uh, the legendary year of 77 even. It's too conservative Which, for me. I mean, I, no, I, I can relate to you. It's, I, it, I can relate it, you know, to you. You're right about, he's right about that. It is very conservative. They're playing with it. They, they shrink the sun. They play Brown and Lemon every freaking night. Now, right. I love that song, so I'm cool with it. But they do... They shave the set list down. Yeah, but, but yeah. the set list. Sorry, sorry, no, you go ahead. Jason. I was gonna say, well, set. You know, set. I'm actually even okay with that because in like 72, 73, the set list was still pretty small as well. In those years, it's more that there's not enough like out playing and really adventurous mm-hmm. stuff for me. And the, the, I agree. there's stuff from 77 that I love. Sure, like, oh, of course, lots and like, of it. And, and, and to me, like five eight is like a, is like a greatest hits album in like a good way. But I don't generally listen to greatest hits albums at the same time, <laughs> so it is. Yeah. Uh, to me, here's here's and I and I, I lo- we are listening to some '76 stuff coming up here. You know, kind of gear ourselves up for this. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and it was the 621, the Philly Tower Theater Show, which is a wonderful show. And and actually, Mickey's actually in terrific form. He's he's yeah, yeah. he's he has even out that hard. Oh, yeah. it's hard to admit. I, I'm with you on Mickey. You know that. Yeah. Um, if Mickey were here, I'd say you ruined Bill Kreutzmann, one of the great drummers. <laughs> you know. 
But the Gang of One, as Garcia called him. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Well, apparently in the '60s he was insane. Like people were actually scared of Mickey. He was out of his mind. So I can sort of see that now. But um, what I love about '77, and I'm a Garcia guy, <laughs> is his playing in May of '77 is. I, there's nothing. There's nothing like it. It's almost like, and I, it's a sports reference. He takes what the defense is giving him. He is playing between the notes that month. He's not playing guitar leads. He's playing responses to a conversation that you can't hear, and he's he's playing between stuff. And you, it's, 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 it's sort of like like a like a Scarlet Fire, like five eight, where it's out of the gates, blah, 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 you know, and he's like, he's, and when he's singing that song, he sounds like his hat's about to blow off kind of thing, and he plays a solo, and he's so relaxed, and he's playing between the notes, as if he's responding to some voice in his head saying, yeah, so what are we going to do next? Let's go down to the Chinese restaurant. You know, it's like that kind of thing, <laughs> and he's, he's just taking what the defense gives him, right, right. and it's a beautiful thing, and he never played like that really any other time. He was amazing other times, don't get me wrong, yeah. but that, well, I agree with you. It's a very and don't get me thing. wrong either, because I haven't come here to bury 1977. Yeah, uh, either. And two Brute. Uh, no, I, I, there's a real, there's a real beautiful flow to, to flow to that stuff. Definitely, it's, and it's it is so it's so heady and so imaginative and so so much of his personality seems not, not that I knew him obviously, but it was invested in that. It's a guy talking to you, yeah. and just having a conversation through an electric guitar that. Is unlike anything that I can't compare it to really anything. There's nobody I can think of who's really done that. I can compare it to jazz. I compare it to like, you know, Sonny Rollins, Aldo Nova, Aldo, Rick Sorry. Derringer, the Canadian uh, Sonny Rollins. <laughs> yeah, right. That's what we call it. Triumph. Yeah. I mean, Rick Emmett. Yeah. I mean, one thing that I will say about like that period, I think, is kind of when their the dead groove, like the dead vibe, really started to split off from from rock music at large and when they started really defunct like you know you get to the 80s and you get to you know the you know the, the, the sneakers in the dryer and it is this very distinct <laughs> groove yeah and i think 76 77 is really when that was when mickey came back that time i think is really when that, that started have you to heard that terminology before or just don't find it as hilarious the sneaker in the dryer no yeah. I, I i i read it it's, you it's, did it's the perfect, perfectly oh, accurate i was reading it in bed and i just like oh my god yeah. who, who i think i texted came up with this yeah you know, yeah next farm gardener did it yeah, i think yeah. that's it was, it was uh it was a great description and i always i always said that they i the dead at their worst and when and when and when the two drummers I always just, I always, before that, now I just use two secrets and dryer. Flabby. <laughs> they were just flabby. Yeah. They were just like a guy with big breasts running down the street. <laughs> and, I ne- and I never understood why they let it get to that point when they were rhythmically one of the most precise, cool bands ever. Yeah. Well, let's, they, had, let's, they had no choice. I'll answer Michael's question sure. and, then, and then we'll move on. Yeah. They had no choice because it started as soon as Mickey came back. They couldn't be anything besides that well, because that's what he is. But, but how about the 68? You know, when they were so... That's what I don't... Well, no, that's fair. They're playing different music. That's fair, they're but... They're uh, different music, though. It yeah. wasn't the same thing. Right. But I let's mean, let's talk about this because, I mean, Yola Tango actually relates to this. I was thinking about it today when we were listening to Electra Pura in the car and then um, popular song or songs. Songs. Yes, songs. And today, because Michael and I are of the mind where I have... There's, parts of me that loves Yolo Tango to a very specific period. Um, and Dave goes a little further beyond that. 
but it's the same question you're asking, you which started, is, you started why, did, why do, either as an audience member, you start to lose interest or becomes less engaging? That's one question we could talk about. Or, or why does, um, how does a band lose sight of who they are or what they do well, or how do they keep moving forward but not alienate their audience, which is a really tricky thing. And Yola Tango has done that. They've only grown their audience. They're, right. they're venerable at this point. They're opening for Bell and Sebastian and Merriweather, which is the biggest venue you can play around there. They opened for the National there, you know, uh -huh. two, uh, two years ago or so. So they've yeah. grown themselves to a degree, but not to a huge degree where they're alienating people, but people like Only me. Only you and me. Right. Well, the degree you're talking about, they've never headlined Merriweather. Right. I mean, they so still they're, are, they're, they're, still are the opening. Question, you the degree know? comes in. Right. And that's all a matter of scale. Like, right. what are we looking at? If you're looking at it from somebody who's like... Uh, you know, who's used to Jay-Z and Justin Timberlake, they're like, they're not even a dot on the screen. Yeah. But for people like us, they're absolutely enormous. What we, what we discovered is the more attention you get, the more you want. So you, you, you forget sometimes the perspective of like, if we thought we gotten this attention, if we had ever got this attention, we would have been fired up, you know? So you always, but, but and so y'all tango to us is like, well, they're opening gigs at, at Meriwether Post Pavilion for 20, 30,000 people, however many were there. I don't know how many were there. Probably but, seven or eight. Yeah, that's best close. Yeah, all right, ten thousand people, seven or eight. But anyway, ten thousand people. So, so ten. So if they're opening for ten thousand people or twelve five, you know, which is my opening salary where I'm publishing. Yeah, mine um, fourteen. Uh, yeah. So for us, that's like that must be just. Yeah, you know, we played for three hundred fifty people at the at the Y in Cambridge, opening for Shushu, and we're like. This is a lot of fun. This is great. <laughs> well, that's when you see the addictive properties of it, because we usually don't play it anywhere close to that. And and, 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 and you say so. You say the smallest little thing, a little minor witticism, whatever. Like ah, ha, 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 that's great. That's brilliant. And you're like, what I did? You know, it's like you Imagine have if they that, were there to see you us. You have that status. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it must be. It must be. Well, I know it is. I know it's heady, but you know, that's another story. Well, anyway, how do you? How do you? That. I don't know. Uh, how do you? Some bands fail at that, like trying to grow and progress, yet maintain their audience. Some fail, and, and some fail at, or at, and actually this is another topic entirely, but like recognizing what people really like about them. Right. And that's something we talk to Chad, our producer, about Chad Clark a lot, about a lot. And he, he maintains that most bands have, don't really understand, they don't get themselves, they don't understand why people like them. I think most people don't understand why people like them. I mean, I, I think yeah. a human characteristic. I think we don't know, sometimes we're not self-aware in ways we maybe ought to be. But you could argue that Yola Tango, you could argue either side of that, but Yola Tango, I mean, I, I don't know. Would you describe them as self-aware? Like oh, they know their audience? extraordinarily. And I think they very well know what people like about them, but I also think they don't necessarily care what people like about them. Right. In some, I, mean, that, I mean, maybe not that to that extreme, but... I mean, they know that they could go out and play all of fake book in order, and everybody would be very, very happy about that. <laughs> but they also have no interest in doing that, which is something right. that I can really respect. Sure. And they can, you know, they 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 they're in it because they want to be in it, and you know, it's, they their their rise was so slow that I think it never even really occurred to them that it was a possibility that they could, you know, lose focus. They were. You know, they were just doing what they wanted to do. I saw them a week yeah. ago tonight. Yeah. Uh, and their sense of purpose up on stage was palpable. Yeah. Uh, and, and they're not 
they weren't doing anything up there uh, that they didn't want to do. Right. Not putting on any airs uh, at all. Right. Which is interesting because I think what put Michael and, all, and I off that band a little bit was them doing exactly what they wanted to do. Yet we're a band who does exactly what we want to do. We don't kowtow to people at all. So as, as artists, we're obviously embrace that. But as an audience member, it changes the equation completely. Because we saw them at the 930 Club in, I guess, 91, 92, probably 92. Yeah. Um, the old 930 Club. And we were huge Fake Book fans. And I'd like Pre President Yoba Tango and Ride the Tiger and all that stuff, too. So I was a fan up to there. But Fake Book was a big record for us. Yeah. And I remember taking my, at the time, girlfriend and her roommate. Yeah, and Michael brought, yeah. We were, so we were sponsoring people at the show, <laughs> which is always a bad gig, right? Yeah, like, you're yeah. always like... It's got to go well, and they got to like this because they're not people who are into it otherwise. Right. And they came out and played the opposite of Fake Book. They did their 45-minute feedback squall right. sort of thing. Yeah. And I respect that artistically. Like I would do that if I felt like it. Actually, but I as didn't. an audience member, Actually, it put me off my feet. I didn't. Completely. I thought I mean, it was undisciplined. I mean, uh, and I think you have to remember, discipline is important. If you do only what you want to do, that isn't really art anymore. That's just beating off. It's not interesting. And, and I think that. I, again, yes, it is also counter to what I wanted to see, which was songs that I love. That, that I, I'm a song person. I love songs, and and and, and it, the fact is that Ira wasn't good at feedback. It squeaked. It wasn't interesting. It wasn't like Bob Mold, you know. Right. So it was. It was just not Definitely. even. It wasn't good feedback. It was like you know when you when you like it. It was, mm -hmm. wasn't pleasant. It wasn't even powerful. It was just annoying. And what I liked best about him that night. And you might remember this. Uh, between songs, he was really funny. And he was like Gary <laughs> Shandling. We yeah. could listen. I don't and remember that at all. I remember that part. And I was like, man, if the music were really good and I got this, these Gary Shandling interludes, this would be an amazing evening. You know, I didn't get that. Well, I guess the first thing I would say is I wouldn't take it too personally. Because I know there, you know, there are these stories about them, like, you know, in probably... In close to that period, where there would be like people from record companies coming to watch the show, that their manager would bring down, you know, having sent them like the Facebook, you know, Facebook, the Facebook demo. Yeah. Excuse yeah, me. Right. I did that earlier. Yeah, yeah. and um, then them coming out and playing the full-on noisy set and scaring all these potential, you know, A and R people out of the room. Um, and the other, but the other part about that is that you know they at that point in their career, especially they were. You know, they weren't the same band as they were when they made Fake Book. They had, you know, they had James in the band and, and, and were really, you know, sort of doing this other thing. And they, you know, because to me the alternative is a band like, you know, it, the, the Dead are kind of, you know, the perfect argument against that, where they just sort of like, I don't know, there was just this inertia that kind of kicked in at some point in the 80s that, you know, probably has a lot to do with the substances they were intaking and all that, but they just kind of turned into this thing that was sort of half what they wanted to be and half what other people wanted to be, right. but, Ooh, but not anything distinct. Yeah. You know, Tango had been around for a few years, and that's why But here's the so difference that I think is interesting, is that the affirmation can be intoxicating, right? In small doses, so you're, again, it can be totally intoxicating. I'm sure you've had this in your, maybe your experience in some respect. Even if it, it can be intoxicating in tiny doses, somebody goes, you're the best, you're absolutely fantastic, yeah. blew me away. And you get wise and you learn, like, you can't just... I don't know. It dissipates quickly. It evaporates, right? Yeah. But if you had not only people, thousands of people seeing it, you're seeing it in print constantly, yeah. and also people creating an industry around loving you, yeah. and not just supporting yourself, but supporting uh, your bandmates, support themselves, 
and their families large and their crew of yeah. Yeah. and like that's when it gets really complicated. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't even know if there, there, there really is an answer to this question, but I guess I, you know, sometimes look at bands like R.E.M., who, you know, and I, you know, I, there's a lot of R.E.M. that I love. Even some of the stuff that, that a lot of other people hate, I, 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 can, I can get into some of those albums. But, you know, R.E.M. was this band that, you know, really just sort of followed this, you know, followed their, their vision and became beloved and became enormous and gigantic. And then at a certain point... It was like they didn't really know what REM was anymore, or it, it, it seemed like. And part of that might have been overpopularity, but I think a lot of it was that they sort of broke out of the routine of what it was for them to be a band, where they all moved to different cities, and you know, it would be like a come together every four years and sort of like you know rehearse for a tour and then go out and or you know make an album. Make a business. Yeah. And, and it, you know, the same thing kind of happened to Sonic Youth in a way where, you know, where they, they, they moved to different, you know, came into the their... The classic rock to, bands, too, the Who, yeah. the Stones. Yeah, they... The know. Who never saw each other unless they were doing business. Right. Right. Uh, and it's, who are you in suit? Who are you? It's a good record. Well, and, it's I, and, I, and I will it's say this... It's a good record. It's a great record. To tap back to Yellow Tango, and this is something that you say, and I agree with you, is that... And, I, and there's a lot of Yellow Tango music that I just don't find very interesting, but one thing I would never say that they lack integrity and that is one thing that I do think and they've kept that core whatever they're trying to do and it may be on a micro level from a day to day thing or even broader than that they've kind of kept true to that in uh-huh. a way that I think is what we were talking about this before I don't see them musically as a model but I've always seen them in some way the way they conduct themselves in their career as a model because they've have a pretty decent idea of who they are, what they are, no matter how well or not well they were doing, they were just going to keep doing it because it was, they, they, they knew it had value and they still do. They know it has some value. It doesn't matter to how many people, but it has value and they're aware of that and that's the only awareness you really need. <laughs> this next song is the first single off of Moon Sickness. It's called Imitation Air.
Um, so yeah, we've been talking to Jesse Jarno um, here of various fames of Big Day Coming, uh, book about Yola Tango, and um, well, you were writing, a new book. currently working on I a new working. book about about well, it's about the history of the Deadheads. Yeah, it's um, sort of it's trying to trace the story of who and why, how, <laughs> all, you know, just how the Deadhead culture emerged and what happened to it and how it connected with American culture at large in a bunch of different ways and and who are you doing that for saying uh decapo different different book company, oh different cool cool company. Yeah. i'm reading a decapo book right now oh, uh, right on a kind of blue oh cool i've not read that and one. and i read the uh the m Doty one oh, cool. on decapo too Sorry, which is a different podcast yes i'll we'll connect about. something michael says uh in his songwriting process uh paraphrasing here like he tries to like write music that like hasn't been written yet or uh, if it already existed if it already existed we wouldn't do it so we'll do that so there are a lot of books about the dead there are even books about deadheads and dead culture already Uh, what do you think is missing from that canon that you're looking to uh, provide there's no complete history of it there's no there's I mean I just know from the people that I'm interviewing there's lots of major players that nobody's ever really talked to and sort of the way all these different threads intersected, you know, sort of the, you know, like one of, you know, one of the ones that I'm really excited to dig into is kind of the early history of deadheads in cyberspace, where there was this guy who worked at the Stanford AI lab in the early 70s, and that was one of the very first email lists that wasn't related to technology or science fiction. Uh-huh. It was a deadhead list that came out of the Stanford lab in, the, in like, 73, I think, and then it went national in 75. And it's, like, you know, these, like, little bits of things that I consider to be, like, genuine American history that are just kind of, you know, untouched or, you know, un- you know people right. haven't really connected the dots on them. So, yeah. I, I, are you talking to the guy who uh, compiled uh, the annotated Grateful Dead? David Dodd? Yes. Um... Possibly, um, I'm certainly because that that dovetails really nicely with oh, the so, angle you just outlined. Yeah, there. I mean, certainly his book is an enormous resource for me, and just being able to like you know sort of dig the in, book came dig from into the website, it. right? And the book came from the website. Oh, right, right. And it's just this collaborative group process. You mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 totally. yeah. Um, yeah. Um, hopefully, I'll be I'll, I'll be talking to him. But yeah, there's you know just all kinds of different little pockets and stuff. You know, like there are all these cults that existed in the '80s, the Spinners and the Twelve Tribes, and you know the Deadheads for Jesus and the all Warf that rats. stuff. Yeah, the Warfrats, who are you know, I wouldn't necessarily call them a, like a cult, but they're something that I'm definitely really fascinated. How about by. the guy who had the thing you could call the 900 number and get the set list? From oh, the one one oh shoot, one nine hundred one dead or something or it was, it was something I would know like it. That. I would know it because I called it. So I know. Oh really? Oh yeah. Oh, oh cool. yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Well, there was that ad. Was it the same thing? It's a YouTube video of an ad they had around the Bay Area in, the, in about nineteen eighty nine. No, this was a thing. This was this a thing. Well, the nine hundred number, Which like a naked chick this? would read you the set list, <laughs> yeah. right? It may have been an eight hundred number. Believe it or no, not. No, no, no. It's the same one. It's a nine hundred number. It was a, you would call, and the guy would say, okay, uh, tonight is uh, October 5th, 1989, uh, Shoreline. Shakedown uh, opener. Shake, uh, sh- uh, you know, Shakedown CC And then I drew an arrow on the cassette tape because it goes in. He didn't Sorry. have to say that. No, I'm just kidding. But he would say, he was yeah. like, yeah, you know, you, you would get, and you're like, like oh, that's so cool. I missed a he, cryptical. I, ha- I hadn't thought about interviewing him. That's actually not a bad idea. It was. Yeah. Even, but I hadn't thought about it until we, we hooked up with my friend Rich and we were like reminiscing. I'm like, oh, whoa, God. whoa, easy, easy. <laughs> <laughs> 
But I mean, I love all those little sort of much. technological innovations that Deadheads would come up with to like do their thing. Like a, a guy I interviewed today is uh, his name is Doug Odie. He runs the uh, Odie Brothers microphone company, yes. where you know he like was a taper and got really into modifying the gear and like to the point where he like he figured out that like the erase head was adding this like noise level of like hiss to every tape. So cool. if you remove the tape head from the tape deck, you get a much cleaner recording. Circuit cool. building. Yeah, circuit yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. And but and you know I just all these fascinating characters that kind of like yeah. add up into this big thing. He was like a, a he was a field recorder. Like he tested all his gear by bringing like his whole microphone setup like into the wilderness and like setting it really quietly and like recording the sound of a fly flying across a field and landing in between his microphones, which is that's awesome. Yeah, all the seeds. There was the golden grove. Oh yeah, the golden. There was that one. I don't know what it was called. It was like an orange thing. I remember this vividly. In the lot or. No, I would know it probably if I heard it, but they had a whole article about 76, and they had done this analysis where the BPMs, they played everything faster in 76, like most things, and they, they showed, look at this, you know, look at this uh, help on the way compared to a year later and all the ones after that. It's, you know, it's 93 oh, I'd BPMs. Love, I'd it's, love to see that. that I, sounds, I would love to find yeah, it myself. It was in the back. I saw this. Well, and that's kind of one of the themes yeah. of some of the things we talk about, I, I, I'm finding, as we talk to people, is that finding scholar, using scholarly approaches to study things that are not traditionally seen as scholarly, yeah. I think it's fascinating. Yeah. And there's an amazing Grateful Dead academic scene. It meets, oh, yeah, it, yeah. It meets every year in Albuquerque at the, uh, what the the full name of the thing, the... Um, Southwestern Popular Cultural Association conference. It's been meeting for like 15 years now, and there's like this, you know, really this crew of people who are all friends with each other. You know, some are enemies with each other. I shouldn't <laughs> say that, but um, they probably, it's true though. They probably have these divisions. There are, like, there are some just like you would about studying like Shakespeare or yeah. Uh, I'll or say they're you know Bruce. they're people who are historians who aren't crazy about the, you know philosophers or something like that. Sure, you know. That, not that that's a specific <laughs> example. Um, Michael just raised his hand. <laughs> but there's, he but there, them all. But, um, yeah, I just spent a bunch of time with Nick Merriweather, who, who runs the Grateful Dead Archive at UC Santa Cruz, who's just been an incredible yeah. resource for this project. You know, there, there are a lot of people who put... Is that the one they store in Burbank at the Rhino? No, that's the, the, that's the vault. That's, that's, the, the, that's, the, the, that's the music itself. This is the, like... Dead friendly guy speaking yeah, yeah. that head. Sorry. <laughs> this is the that yeah. That's, so the music the music is all with the Rhino people. The the, the archive is like their correspondence the and like, their library basically. Yeah, and like you know a bunch of the zines and stuff. There's amazing. Like I was reading this great thing on Missis- the Mississippi Twelve Step newsletter, which was a newsletter for for recovering deadheads or recovering. Alcoholics, not recovering. Well, no, but it's for sober people. That's a very clever name. I love it. And it's and it's this very very deadhead approach to the whole thing. Like it's like, here are the twelve steps. What dead songs represent each step the best? And there are these really beautiful testimonials in it. Like people who are like, man, you know, I got sober and I thought I was never going to get to see the dead again, and just I stayed away. And then I went to this show. And I had this really, it was a really hard time. Everybody was offering me, you know, Coke or, or pot or whatever. And I, I, I had to say no to it. But then I found all the wharf rats at set break. And it was just this beautiful, amazing thing. And I can see the dead again. And I thought I was never going to be able to do it. And now I'm, like, That's back awesome. on tour. And there's a support group. And it's, it's really inspiring. Because, you know, I, I, I definitely know people who've had 
had to get sober, and the idea of being a deadhead and having to navigate that world as as a sober person just sounds like the most terrifying thing in in, well, in some ways. Garcia couldn't do it. I mean, uh, yeah, it's very it's, it's yeah. hard. I mean, that's the life. True. Yeah. Mylon couldn't do yeah. it, yeah, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway, yeah. hey, Jess, you've been great talking yeah, to you. Man, me. I think we could go for another couple hours easily right. if we <laughs> had to, but, uh, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. So, uh, Jesse, yes, new book, when, when's the... When 2015, you, for 2015. The, uh, the, the 50th anniversary, the 50th anniversary, as they call that year. Jeez. That's awesome. That'll be really <laughs> cool. Well, hopefully, you the know, 50th. we'd love to talk to you again yeah, at some so, point. I remember seeing the 85, the 20th anniversary. They yeah. Would, they would, oh, yeah. The Rochester true. show. I had to poster like, that up on my wall. Amazing. So, anyway, uh, thanks for listening. We're the Caribbean. This is the Labor Podcast, and uh, we've been with Jesse Jarno, and we're signing off here from Splitty in um, Brooklyn, and we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye. Bye. So that's it for this episode. We feel like we could have spoken to Jesse for another couple hours. Um, thanks a lot to Jesse Jarno for joining us there in Spet Splitty, and uh, here's Mr. Let's Find Out from 2011's Discontinued Perfume to finish us up. Thanks for listening. Waiting in lines, provocation for a violent coup. Well, there's no heartbreak from the tower, no reassurance, no rescue. We're needed in five, four, three, two. So our